Millennials are ruining the world An exennial perspective Hey everyone, welcome back to Millennials are ruining the world question mark An exennial perspective Where we have real conversations bridging the gap between generations X and Y I'm not woke, but I'm awake uh, My guest today is actually older than Generation X uh, he's a boomer, I think. Okay, boomer. Yes, I am a boomer. Yes, I, the, I think you're the only boomer I've ever had on the podcast. So this is exciting. We're we're bridging the generations today. Okay, uh, well, wait, wait. What's a boomer? I'm confused. Oh wait, I'm I'm I think I'm too old. Oh, where am I? Oh, okay. Hi. Oh, who are you? <laughs> uh, so my guest today is a New York-based playwright, librettist, and lyricist whose musicals and plays have been produced in New York, San Francisco, England, and the Midwest. Ooh, the Midwest. St. Louis, yes. Uh, he's a two-time nominee for England's Best New Song Competition, but never had a chance to win because he's too old. Uh, that's sad. Uh, it's true. Addition, is that the one we were nominated for? Or this is it was. One? Yes, absolutely. Got it, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm not that old. Uh, in addition to writing musicals and plays, his book, A Hundred Things to Do at the Jersey Shore Before You Die, was published in April last year in the midst of the pandemic, so he was basically depressed for a month. Uh, Join the club. Uh, however, he has rebounded, and his book is now the number one New Jersey travel guide on Amazon. Who would visit New Jersey? Uh, to celebrate, and because he's always up for a challenge, he has embarked on a 139-mile walking trek of the Jersey Shore from Sandy Hook to Cape May, not all at once, I did check. Uh, he'll be passing Lucy the Elephant, Seals, Surfers, Casinos, Birdwashers, and semi-legal pot smokers, because New Jersey just said pot is now legal. Uh, yes. I kept smelling it in Central Park the other day. Oh. Uh, that's, it's actually, I don't mind smelling it, it kind of calms me down. Uh, right. He lives in Manhattan with his wife, Valerie, and his dog, Jack, who was featured in the book, I'm My Own Dog, I'm Jack, which was co-authored with Mario Lopez, who you might've heard of uh, from Saved by the Bell and Entertainment Tonight. Uh, Jack is so over COVID, his parents are always home and he can't sleep 18 hours a day. I don't know, Smith still sleeps 18 hours a day. Uh, please welcome Marcy Stab. what's going on? Hey, um, I'm just... Working real hard. You and I actually are working on a new show, if you remember. Oh, that's true. That's <laughs> true. I'm excited about that. I am. Um, this is the first time I've actually seen you on Zoom this whole pandemic. I know. It's uh, surprising, isn't it? Yeah. We, I mean, we, we talk on the phone. I, I think we both prefer to just talk on the phone. Yeah. That's a, what, right? I mean, it's what we do. Right? Millennials, we're like, oh, I have to see you on FaceTime. That's okay. <laughs> I don't need FaceTime. I completely agree. I never want to see people. It's exhausting. Yeah. I, yeah. I prefer talking on the phone. I Everyone I call on the phone is mostly uh, my age, just around my age. I have like friends who still, it's better. You can do things. You don't have to be glued. You can put your laundry away or you can be in your pajamas or whatever. You can be uh, walking on the beach like I am right now, or not right now, but as I'm doing over the course of this summer. Well, that sounds relaxing. I've never been much of a beach person. It's kind of too sandy. And I don't really like the sun. Uh, and the ocean, you know, I'll tell you, the ocean in Hawaii is much nicer than the ocean in New Jersey. It is. 
Yes, absolutely. Hawaii is beautiful. Yeah, great. When I was in the ocean in Hawaii in January, I was like in heaven. When I'm in the one in New Jersey, I'm like, oh, it smells. <laughs> oh, it does not smell. I swim. I swim one mile. Ocean swims uh, four or five times across the summer. There are races, and it doesn't smell. Well, that's amazing. You're you're yeah. in better shape than I am. Well, yeah, I, that's true. I was going to say I'm half your age, but that's an exaggeration. I'm, yeah. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not that old. No. Uh, that would be the generation above you, I guess. Uh, all right. So the first question, of course, I ask everybody when they're on my show is how did we meet? How did we meet, RC? Uh, we met because we were in a speed dating. Now, not speed dating for <laughs> romantic relationships, but... Speed dating for potential collaboration. I know. I was between, waiting. For it. I was like speed dating. Dot 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 dot. Yes, dot. yes. Between composers and lyricists slash librettists. That's how we met, and we met. We seemed to have a good connection, and we had no idea that there was any story that we would ever work on. We then I remember uh, talked uh, in Bryant Park. Yeah, uh, we met after in that Park, and I brought okay. ideas, and you brought ideas, and it was no. No, no, I don't like that terrible idea. Bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. We didn't like. And then you were like, I remember. Then a few years later, maybe you were like, I got this idea for a dating show, and I was like, Oh, I already have a dating show. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and you were like, It's not going to be cynical at all. And I was like, uh, All my songs are very cynical because. <laughs> but we did, however, when you you did say, What about this story that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote? Yes, the diamond yes. big as the red. So you sent me a note and said, you know, I think this would make a great musical. What do you think? And I got that book, or it's really a novelette. And I sat on a plane and I read the first 10 pages and I thought, this is a terrible idea for a musical. <laughs> I don't know how it would work. And then I, I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to finish it anyway. I'm on the plane. It's only so I finished it. Pages. That's right. And so I finished it and I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe this could work. And so we embarked on a uh, are actually a fairly easy collaboration. I mean, you know, we disagree a lot, but we've never had any like fights or arguments. And You're we, like the only collaborator that I haven't had at least one fight with. No, I mean, I've never been, I mean, no, I've never hung up on the phone or I've never hung the phone up on you or vice versa. And, and you've never stormed out of a meeting, you know? Yeah, I think we have similar sensibilities. Yes, yeah. You know, we're both into perfect rhymes and good scansion and telling the story. And it also helps, I think, from my end, uh, Love Quirks and a few of my other projects are, are very emotional and personal to me because they're so based on, uh, you know, my real life or people I know. And this is, there's like an emotional, uh, the opposite of emotional connection, detachment for me. So I think it's also a little easier when I'm, when you're, setting something like this. Like when I did my children's musical, there were no problems there either because it was adapted from something. I think the adaptation uh, helps. And that's actually our topic today. So that was a great segue. Thank you very much. Uh, our topic today. <laughs> thank you to yourself or me. <laughs> yes, no, I'm thinking myself because I'm oh, yeah. that was not intentional. It's just, it was beautiful. That was beautiful. Beautiful segue. Uh, uh, yeah. I praise myself because no one else praises me. That's not true. <laughs> I'm in theater for the validation and praise. But uh, so our topic today is adapting a musical 
And uh, what does adapting a musical mean to you, RC? Well, it's taking um, an original story, whether it be in print, um, it could be a movie, um, it could be a song, but that's probably hard because very few songs have a kind of a, a complicated story. So it's, so, or even a true story, I guess you could say, you know, somebody's true life story. I think it's probably better if you take an existing project that when you read it, you can see that there's beginning, middle and end. And, you know, I would say most novels, um, probably a vast majority of them are just not something that are easily adaptable into a musical because they tend to be either centered around a person's thoughts or in first person, or they sort of go into the psychological depth of a character. And while a musical can touch on that, you know, if you were, if you're doing a Faulkner story and it's called I'm laying, I lay dying and it's all about, you know, you know, and, and, and not that you couldn't make it into a musical, but it's just that it would be, you know, sort of this weird stream of conscious and, and I, and, you know, the audiences, they want to be able to follow, oh, that A, B, C, D, this happens, this happens, this happens. I kind of yeah. want to see the As I Lay Dying musical, but I'm in the, I'm in the minority. Well, yeah, maybe, but it's I, not going to be very commercial. Yeah, it's not going to be commercial. Nobody's going to, um, it would be hard to get a producer to produce it. If you did somehow get somebody to produce it, you know, you and six other people would love it and the rest of the audience would walk out. Yeah, that's true. Well, I have learned, you know, the only way to get something produced is to produce it yourself because people, uh, the, uh, the big time producers have their own agendas and their own projects already. It is, it is absolutely impossible unless you uh, take the lead. And that's why I have a show off Broadway. If I had not taken the lead to produce it, it, it would not be it would not be right. Right. and you know that and it, and you have to get it up i mean up on its feet you have to and that's just not always with a mic uh, you know a stand in front of the singers singing the song it has to the people have to see it and understand it and a musical is about movement and song and it's not people's quite yes. sitting if there with the script if you're doing right. as i lay dying there's not a lot of movement because Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. That's probably not a great idea for a musical. I, yeah. I have a bunch of Faulkner books I got at the Strand for 50 cents, although now that they got rid of 50 cents books at the Strand, they're all a dollar now, which is a little bit much for my price range. Right. Uh, but I uh, know I have a bunch and I never want to read them. I always think I should read them. Right. And, uh, I, I am working my way through The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And uh, that, that could be an interesting musical, but probably not. It's very long. Yeah, that's the challenge there too, right? So people who have, have taken that, that novel have taken bits of it and parts of it and to made it into a show, right? And like not attempted to, to do the whole thing. It would be really hard. Yeah, that's like how the Great Common of 1812 takes yeah. like three chapters of War and Peace instead of the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think the challenge of adapting is is you have to be able to tell somebody the story quickly and you and you with your partner, if you're writing it together with someone, have to be able to say, oh, I see, here's the beginning, here's the crisis, or here's the conflict, here's the crisis, here's how it ends. And if you can't see those signposts, right, or, or, or you don't agree to the signposts in the beginning and they're not clear from the story, then you're, you're just gonna be floundering. Yeah, well, we both are big fans of outlines. I have worked with, you know, some collaborators who are not as outlined based, but 
No, I think most of my collaborators are outline based because I am very structured. And I think that helps to have like a, a you start with an outline and then as 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 we're writing our new show, uh, the outline changes and grows, but at least you you're right, you set the beginning, middle, end. Uh, you know, like our new show has a nice act one finale. Uh, the Diamond of Bridge of the Rich, of course, is a nice 90-minute uh, five-person show, which is more aimed for smaller theater nonprofits and off-Broadway. Right, and you, if you remember on Diamond as Big as the Rich, we had it all, we actually followed the novel fairly closely, or the novelette, and then uh, at some point we realized um, we needed to flip around some scenes um, in the middle part of the show because it didn't quite work with the way the songs were and with how the characters were built. So we added something, but we only knew, but we added it within the confines of knowing we couldn't just add it at the beginning and add it at the end. Yeah. The, the middle and then the other, the long and the other thing with the, with that was we gave it a modern context by giving it a framework so that, that our, the, the, the principal stories, storytellers were actually not the Fitzgerald characters. They were somebody else. And they told the story of the Fitzgerald uh, characters, right? right. Of, well, of that the show. But that's like the hard. revival on Once on This Island, same sort of thing, right? So yeah. you you start in sort of present day, and then you the, the, you know that whatever story you're telling in the present, or at least the characters in the present, are reflecting in some way to the to the characters in the story that you're telling. Right. Well, that was all your idea. Uh, so how did you come up with that frame there? Uh, I, I came up with the frame because I realized that people would find the characters in the Fitzgerald story to be un, um, unlikable. self-serving, unlikable, um, not even, they sort of did things somewhat illogically. And so... Uh, it's if you if you have characters in the present day saying I'm going to tell you this story, it gives you some license to make the characters a little wackier and crazier, and you don't have to worry that they're grounded in reality. Yeah, I, I love not being grounded in reality, uh, but we did Google it, and uh, as well as you know, I'm telling the listeners, not you, uh, Thomas Meehan and Hal Prince were working on a version of the story, and it was going to be a huge. Uh, extravaganza type musical and it, it it probably didn't work because it did not have that added frame to comment on the characters from a hundred years ago. Correct. But in terms of me, uh, speaking of the Strand, that's where I got my copy. So I am a big Fitzgerald fan, uh, as RC is as well, of course. And I uh, I had read every one of his novels and I was at the Strand and I actually paid $5 for that book, which is a lot more than I usually pay for books. But I was like, oh my, there are short stories by one of my favorite author. And uh, I, I still haven't read all his short stories. I read all the ones in that collection. There's another collection that I found and I have a PDF of it on my iPad, but I hate reading things on my iPad. So I never got around to it. Uh, I, think, I think I might have bought another collection that had different stories, but I'm reading this story and I wasn't planning to write musical theater anymore. I think this was 2000 and at the end of 2016 or 17. No, it would have been right after the election we started writing it because I was in a very bad state in December 2016. I think everybody was. I think we started writing 
in like February 2017, right? Sounds uh, right. Yep. So I got the book and um I, I think I I read it, maybe I read it when I went to Poland in 2016. Uh, but I after the election, I just I read this story and I was like, it's all about how horrible rich people are. And I was like, this is so relevant today. It's still relevant. And I could just, uh, there's this, I mean, I guess I'll spoil that it. it's only 26 pages, but at the end, there's this moment where the protagonist, well, I guess the antagonist uh, starts talking to God and there's a whole page where he's begging God to spare his diamond mountain and all his riches. And I'm just reading this page and I'm like, this is totally a song. Uh, so I'm not surprised you didn't see it as a musical at first because I didn't really, it didn't click until I read that page. And I was like, this is, this is a guy pleading with God. Uh, this is a 100% an 11 o'clock number, which I think is one of the best things that I've ever written that song. I love that song, Cut a Deal. And I was like, this is totally musical. And then you have the 16 year olds in love. And I, for some reason I write for 16 year olds in love really well. Maybe I'm emotionally stunted because I was so bullied in high school. Maybe I'm still emotionally 15 or 16. I don't know why, but I just really can write for those characters. And I was like, well, this is clearly a song here. And uh, it just kind of all, I, I could see a couple of where the songs were. And I was like, well, I, this, this is going to be a musical. And in terms of uh, rights and stuff, uh, for those of you who don't know about public domain, public domain means you can do whatever you want, whatever the fuck you want with it, as long as it's in public domain. And the cutoff for that is 19, was 1923. It's it, until like the last few years, like, cause it, the copyright kept getting extended. 1923 has been the cutoff for years. They just announced, actually speaking of Fitzgerald, that The Great Gatsby just came into public domain at the beginning of the year. And now there's like 18 different projects based on it because of that. But for years, the cutoff was 1923 and the story was published in 1922. And I had some rights issues with my children's show uh, because that is based on a book and uh, that's a long story. But the rights, I, I learned the lesson don't write anything that's not in the public domain. Love Quirks, of course, is an original original, which is, as you'll remember from last season's episode on it, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that because it's a really nice companion piece with our discussion today. But that was created from scratch, which is much harder to do than adapting. Uh, so I, I was on the lookout for, um, for public domain, but as I said, I was done writing musicals because I had my sitcom pilot and I was very focused on getting on TV. And uh, I thought I'm, I'm not really writing musicals anymore because you know it, it, they had broken my heart. And this was before I brought Love Quirks back in 2019. Uh, I just was like, I was done. But this book sang to me so much that I was like, well, I guess I'm writing a musical again. That's how much I really appreciated Fitzgerald and the fact that it was written a hundred years ago, but it was so relevant today. It's still a satire, uh, you know, as it says in the finale, uh, when the rich get richer and the poor stay poor, it's just enough, enough already. And I just thought it was a sentiment that was so uh, relevant 
today. So yes, so I wrote RC because we had so many project ideas that none of us, not one of us didn't like. And I said, you know what? I feel like RC would like Fitzgerald. And I, my, I think my first email to you was, do you like Fitzgerald? And I think you wrote back, he's my favorite yeah. author. And then I yeah. said, check out this story. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. I'm, I'm so glad we wrote this show. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I actually, uh, that's, I think that one of the, one of the things I've learned, I'm going to steal from your last question here is uh, in the past 10 years is write something you like, right? Don't, I mean, occasionally if somebody's paying you a lot of money, you can write it, but, but even then, you know, I, I, I feel, I like this story. I like what we wrote. And even if, nobody ever does anything else with it. I feel good about what we did. I like it. I enjoy it. I can listen to it again. If, if I uh, owned a theater tomorrow, I wouldn't feel ever feel embarrassed or confused or feel like, Oh, that wasn't very good. I mean, sometimes you write something, you go back and you look at it and you think, Oh, it's not so good, but I think it's interesting. And, and so, yeah, so I, I don't, th I think if you're writing in theater, you're better get the satisfaction from the finished product, regardless of what happens to it. Yeah, that's very good advice. Uh, I, I love it too. I listened to it the other day because I just sent it uh, to another producer. Now, I don't hold my breath on these things, but you know, it's always good to, to send it as many places as you can. And I, I it holds up. And you know, that's, that's also the timeless style of craft. And that's what I got from reading Sondheim's books is if you have the craft and you're writing music that is uh, that the story, the content dictates the form. So if the story uh, says you should write in this, you know, it's great if we write in the jazz style from the 1920s, then that that is timeless. It is, it is of itself and it doesn't get dated like, you know, any of those pop musicals that if you listen to, even Rent sounds kind of dated when you listen to it now. It just feels so 90s, which I mean, for what it is, of course it's 90s. But I think that Diamonds Bigger the Rich is pure and could play 20, 30 years from now pretty easily without changing much of it. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't even make a difference who the president is. Yeah. I mean, it's still going to be relevant. Yeah. The frame with immigration, that there have been people trying to get in this country since the 1700s. So like that's, there's I think the 1500s. Be, yeah, there's always going to be people who are, are trying to get into America. Yep. And the American dream is always going to be, uh, you know, a push and pull between the rich and the poor. That's just how it's, I don't, I hope it's not always the case, but it probably will always be the case. In our lifetimes and anybody listening to the show's lifetime. Yeah. I mean, maybe people are listening to the podcast a hundred years from now, but I doubt it because I have to pay the annual fee to keep it up on SoundCloud. Uh, maybe eventually I would just move the archives of it onto YouTube, which would stay up forever. But I don't know that people will, how people will find it. Like if you're thinking 50 years from now, the amount of videos on YouTube will be in the billions. Like how would you ever just stumble upon this? You won't. Yeah, so thank you for listening. And we understand you're probably listening 
in the next few years and not <laughs> not in the, the distant future. Who knows? Yes. Who knows? Uh, but you know, while we're talking about that, I, I think it would be great to talk about the process of how we write. I get this question a lot from non-writers. They're just, or even writers who don't do music and lyrics, they're, they're fascinated uh, by this. So I believe that I read the story and uh, you said, what songs do you have in mind? And I think maybe I gave you a few and then you read the story and then you made an outline, right? Yeah, I knew you said, look, this is a great 11 o'clock number um, kind of deal. So, you know, if you know that, a I mean, there weren't a lot of them that you wrote. I you think you're probably like three ideas you have of songs that went into right places. Yeah. And they were all logical. It was nothing confusing or complicated or obvious. I'm a pretty right? logical person. Yes. Yeah. Mine so, is very straightforward. Here's a moment that is very clear. Right. So we, so I did, I think probably a three or four page out, outline of story beats. So, you know, these characters meet here and there's probably a song here. These, this, and so you kind of, you just literally list this, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. And then as you, as you're creating that outline, you're asking yourself each of those story moments in the script, is this something that you can sing or is it too complicated of an idea? I mean, as you know, because we're writing an Agatha Christie mystery, there's going to be, there well, are did times. Do you want to say what that is on the podcast? Are we sure, announcing it? Sure, sure. It's the secret adversary. Oh, we've announced it. Wow. I've been, <laughs> it. I, I've been holding it to, to my chest. But for that one, I had this great idea of why don't I look at what's going to be in the public domain in the next few years, knowing that it would take a few years to get the show up anyway, I kind of jumped the boat. And I, I think that one entered the public domain this year or next. Yeah, it's already there. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because you, that's one of her first ones. It, it turned out every year now there's a new Act the Christie book because she wrote like one a year. Uh, but we actually, yeah, you picked that one. I, I was like, here are the first five. And uh, that I think that's a great choice because Tommy and Tuppence, although of course we're not calling her Tuppence because that's that's dating it. But again, we, we set it you know, in 2022 instead of 1922. Right. Right. Because, you know, it's, if you try to, if you, if you're, if you're adapting as a Christie, you know, especially a murder mystery, it's, it's so complicated and you have to try to figure out a way how you simplify it. And, and then if you're adapting something, especially our early books, which are very uh, specific to a time period in England, you're just killing yourself trying to set the scene. And I mean, take you 20 minutes, 30 minutes into the show before you can even start the murder mystery part. Yes, or the mystery everyone part. would have to talk like this the whole time and you'd have to train the actors to have the same accents. Ugh, it's just, yeah, it's really, really difficult. So we're taking the basic story and, and her, these, these main characters, Tommy and Tuppence, who we call different names um, are, one of her um, sleuths, you know, they're a team. They're, they turn into eventually get married in her later books and become a sleuthing team, just like uh, Mrs. Marple and Hercule Poirot. And, the, and those characters really haven't been explored very much. So it gives you an opportunity to not have to go against the public perception of, oh, Mrs. Marple is, oh, she's like, Angela Lansbury, right? I mean, she's not, but 
Like, sort of, very similar. Yeah. Murder yeah, very similar. Miss or, you know, Poirot's been done like three or four times in the big screen. Well, he's back now. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. So, so there's so many of those out there that you, you'd, you'd be fighting this perception of, or people's perception of, well, Poirot looks like this, sounds like this, talks like this. Nobody knows how those two sound. And then putting them in the present day frees us and gives us a lot of um, liberty. Um, but we do want to, you know, if, if somebody says, I'm an Agatha Christie fan, we do want them to come to the show and feel like they are at least following the essence of the novel. Well, I don't know how many people have read that particular novel because I read quite a lot of her novels growing up and I, I didn't read that one. Exactly. But Agatha Christie ought to be something that sells and there aren't a lot of murder mystery musicals out there. There's really just there's a handful, the, six or seven. There's the mystery of Edwin Drood where you put yes. things. That one's fun. And then there's Curtains, which right. uh, I enjoy Curtains, but it's not, you know, the best Canard musical out there. And there's something afoot. Uh, that's old and obscure. I haven't even seen uh, But that. it's still produced. That's still done a lot in, in uh, community theaters. I didn't know people did that. I don't even know oh, yeah. know the score. Oh, yeah. They do it because it's easy. It's like, I think, six or seven characters. It's a murder mystery. It's spoof. It's fun. It's easy. So, yeah. So there are very, so the point is, it's not like you're you're bucking uh, you're up against you know ten shows that are currently being produced a lot. That, no, I mean somewhere. in terms of Broadway, I think Curtains and Drood are the only ones. Were there any other murder mysteries on Broadway? Something afoot, and and I think there was a Clue mystery. I think there's. A but I don't think that was on Broadway. Though. Yeah, those were off Broadway. Broadway. Yeah, there's so. a couple off Broadway things. There's the you know Murder for Two. Um, oh yeah, that's a two-person off-Broadway. And then there's the other one with uh, there's another murder one that was off-Broadway. I can't think of the name of it. Murder by Death. Was that a musical? I think so. I'm not sure, but the point is there aren't a lot. Yeah, there are not a lot, and I, I can only yeah. come up with two on the actual Broadway. And we do, right. think, you know, I I'm not going to lie. I do think Agatha Christie will sell really well. Yes, hopefully, yeah. Uh, so we'll put her name in it, and uh, I, I think it's fun. We moved it. To instead of after World War One, which that would have been a lot of explaining to do. It's after World War Two in the book. It's after World War One in the book. Two twenty two. No, in the book. Yeah, it's World War. I. Pretty sure it's two. No, I will bet money on this. That's how sure I am. <laughs> World War Two was in the forties. I know what World War Two was. <laughs> yeah, after the Nazis and the and stuff. No, this was World War One. All right, all right. In nineteen twenty. 23 or 4. All right, I have it right here. Oh, no, it's not it. Darn. Do you want to put money on it? I have the book right here. All right. Oh, $2. All right, I'm going to win $2. Okay. It was 2 p.m. on the afternoon of May 7th, 1915. That's the oh. first line. No, that can't, that, can't, that can't be right. It can't be 1915 because the war was over. No, the war just hadn't no, begun yet. That's the prologue. Uh, no, 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 no. You got to tell me what the story is said. I don't care about the prologue. What? All right. Uh, Tommy O'Bean. Uh, no, the story is set in 19... The book itself was written... It's in, not... The story is not set in 1915. I guarantee it. The war didn't begin. The, no, no, no. The story is set in 1922. Published in 1922 is the copyright. What it, oh, it is published now in Now then, said Tommy. Let's oh, I guess you're right. Remember, right. I haven't seen you since that time in hospital in 1916. Well, I owe you $2. Yes, I just made $2, guys. You heard it here. We should have bet more. 
I was very confident on that. <laughs> so instead of World War One, it happens after the pandemic. So the first number is called We Can Breathe Again. And it's very, very catchy. And it's a huge dance number. And people take their masks off. And uh, I think, you know, I, there, I, there was an article the other day, someone said he could breathe again. And I went, yes, that's the, that's the opening number from our show. It's very exciting. Exactly. I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be a great, uh, a great, great show with the yep. full ensemble and, uh, you know, ready for the Broadway. We just need to raise $10 million. Woo. And, well, no big deal because, you know, nobody's doing shows now. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see we'll how see, many. Yeah. It's like they thought there was going to be a, a baby boom after the pandemic and there wasn't. Uh, so we'll see if there's a show boom. It's possible people wrote, but then uh, I think Tracy Letts posted something about how he wasn't able to write at all this year. Like oh. everyone was like, you can use this time to write. And he was like, I, he couldn't do it. I get mostly inspired when I'm out of my apartment. You know, if I'm sitting in my apartment all day, every day, I, I don't yeah. feel like writing. It also feels like if you're in your apartment all day and there's no end in sight, you think, what's the point? Yeah, that's where I was at the beginning. Yeah, but yeah. Then, then I started being able to go out and now being vaccinated, I can take vacations again. And I feel I feel I can breathe again, which is, of course, the sentiment. Uh, yes. All right. So back to our writing process. Yes. So you, we read the first we read the whole thing. That's important. Um, <laughs> and we have the outline. Right. Uh, and, well, and the outline includes ideas for where songs would go and who would sing them. And then at least that's my first. I send it to you. And then, I, you know, we sort of look and think, well, we can't have the female lead sing eight songs in a row. Right. Right. So you just sort of do a quick gut check on, wait a minute, we've got we've got to, you know, add more ensemble numbers or whatever. We, we, we can't just have uh, which is one of the challenges with this show. The one we're writing is. A, sh a, a solid let me introduce me next person comes in let me tell you about me next person comes in, let me tell you about me it's a little bit tricky so yeah well we try to have different kind of styles for all, all right. those songs Diamond's as big as the ritz i i'm pretty sure i wrote that show out of order i'm pretty sure i wrote all of the i i, I you know even for the secret adversary has a love triangle i don't know i couldn't write the love stuff so i guess i'm just a mushy wishy pisces guy I write all the love stuff so fast and that's what I do right away. So I'm pretty sure I wrote most of the love material for Ritz first. And I'm sure I wrote Cut a Deal early in the process because that was, especially for the Ritz, it was, I was taking actual lines from, from the, because Fitzgerald is such a poet and it's just so beautiful. So I tried to actually take his actual words, but Agatha Christie, you know, she's, especially in the early ones, she's not the best writer you know what i mean she's very good with plot but the writing itself it's not it's not mellifluous as as fitzgerald so i don't think we're really using anything she wrote besides the plot no nothing no yeah because it's also said it because our show set in america and you know 2022 and her show is set in 19 something <laughs> i think it's 1920 something 20. okay yes, uh, 100 years ago right almost uh so and it's and it's set in england so i mean there would be no real dialogue but i think the other thing we had to change in the novel the guy uh one of the the rich guy searching for jane chin 
uh, it turns out they're related and he ends up with his cousin and we changed that too. We're not <laughs> like the importance of being earnest, but we, we made it that he was searching for a long lost friend, like a friend of the family. So right. uh, instead of a cousin, that's one of the one things we did change. Yeah. That's just icky to think about these days. Yeah. I yes, think that's a great change. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so the Ritz, I think I wrote out of order, but we're doing, I, I think writing in order is great. I know Aaron's and Flaherty, they, when I saw them interviewed at some point, they really like to start the show in order. And for Secret Adversary, besides the Act One finale, which I repurposed, I wrote this song on spec for a, a, a musical movie. I did not get hired, but I fell in love with the song. And I was like, oh, this totally works for what we're writing. Uh, we just rewrote the lyrics, but we, we kept a lot of, uh, we kept most of the music. Uh, so that got written early just because I had it. And uh, I did write, uh, you know, sometimes I get inspired and a, a song will just plop out of me because sometimes I just, I will write songs in my sleep, which is how I ended up with uh, what might be one of our last act two numbers. It just fell out of me and I'm like, well, it's great, here we have it, but we're not going to uh, tackle that lyrically until we get there. It's just kind of a placeholder. And I did write uh, one of the love songs just the music, uh, I have it all but love, and we didn't tackle those lyrics till we got there. Uh, but it's it's helpful for me, I think, to have titles and hooks. And so RC and I will go back and forth, and I, I usually won't start writing a song till we agree on the title. Well, you usually won't write a song till you agree on the title, and I say who's doing it, and I usually you usually ask me to write like. Not an outline of, of the song, but like what's happening in the song. Yeah, treatment. Yeah. I love yeah. Yeah. I love when RC does treatments. I think it's very helpful. Uh, and, you know, I don't always use everything, but sometimes I use a lot of it. Yeah. So uh, unless it's a song that is very clear, like for the Ritz, we didn't need quite as many treatments because I took a lot. You could take it from the, yeah, you could take yeah. it from the novel. Yeah. But for, for this project, we are... So once we agree on the title, uh, it needs to be something that sings to me. Like we have a great song uh, called I Can Keep a Secret. Uh, in the original story, it's an opera singer. In our story, she's a, a cabaret hostess. Uh, so it's like a you know burlesque, kind of burlesque number. And he came up with the title, I Can Keep a Secret. And I was like, I got it. Like as soon as he said that, the whole number became very clear to me. And if I don't have that aha moment, I, I can't write. So I, I prefer waiting until I get that. Like when he said the opening number is we can breathe again, I, I got it right away. And sometimes it'll be like, we'll, we'll be trying and it just, it doesn't sting. So we just keep going back and forth and brainstorming what is the essence of the song? Like, I think it took us a while to get here for hire as the title because there were a lot of options and I just needed to be something snappy and then I'll write the lyric and I usually repeat the hook like 25 times and then RC <laughs> is like can we cut it down to five times so this exactly is like, like for we can breathe again I think the whole time I, I think I had it four times a verse and he's like I think you can have it one time a verse 
I can keep a secret, I think was was there two times in the chorus. You're like, I think one time is enough. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, you know, speaking of the collaboration part, um, I think people who don't necessarily, or who know you but haven't necessarily worked with you from a collaborative standpoint, imagine that you would be didactic and difficult, but you're actually not. You're, you're, you're very amenable to change. And so, um, you know, if I could sort of justify why we should change it, I mean, you're, you're actually great further along in the process when we got our musical uh, director along and, you know, and, and actors and actors would say, you know, I'm having a problem singing this and, you know, can we change this around? And then we would work with the music director um, to sort of come up with ideas. And then with not, with you not in the room, <laughs> and then we would send them to you and you almost always agreed. Yeah. I, I hate being in the room because I have no attention span and I'm always a distraction and I always get distracted. And then I start pacing and uh, I, I just don't, I don't have patience for the process. I know a lot of people say <laughs> that process is very important and I agree, but I don't necessarily have to be there for that. And then I can just get the cliff notes for Love Works too. Brian, the director, he doesn't want me in the room. He's like, you're not coming to any rehearsal because I hate when you're there. And I say, great, I hate when I'm there too. And they do, they say, this lyric isn't working. Can we rewrite it? And uh, I'll have to like send that little clip to some of my collaborators. I, I think that it helps, as I said, that it's based on a short story and not based on my life. Uh, that that helps me. But also, you know, by the time Love Quirks got off Broadway, I, I was no longer as connected to the songs as I had been when I wrote them 10, 15 years ago. And I do think that is something I have worked on. But at the end of the day, I have always been amenable to fitting a song to a singer. Uh, I saw uh, Seth Rudetsky uh, interview Marvin Hamlish years ago uh, when I was videoing for him at Don't Tell Mama. And I, one thing Marvin Hamlish said stuck with me even now. I don't remember most of the interviews that I saw. I saw quite a few. Uh, he said that he was working on Funny Girl as a rehearsal pianist and he was talking to Julie Stein and said, does it bother you when Barbara takes liberties or changes a lot? And Julie Stein said to Marvin, no, it's when you're a songwriter, you're a tailor. So you, you make the song and then when it gets to the singer, you fit it with the singer and your job is to fit with the singer and it doesn't behoove you, the singer or the song to be fixated on. It has to be this way because you know, when the singer does, it has to be true for them. And so Marvin Hamlish learned that lesson from Julie Stein and I learned that lesson from Marvin Hamlish. Very good. Indirectly, because I was in the audience. He didn't tell me personally, but just like Sondheim, I think learned lessons from Cole Porter and Frank Lesser. If you read his book, he talks about that. Uh, I think it's, it's great to be open to that, but especially for, you know, it, it has to serve the show and it's very hard to write lyrics in a show because they have to rhyme perfectly. They have to scan perfectly. They have to be singable. You have to make sure the melody doesn't jump too much, uh, which is a comment I got in Love Quirks and the Ritz. I, I've learned that I tend to write with big intervals because I like that. That's more operatic because I listen to opera and classical music mostly. And in the musical, you don't want to jump quite so much. And so I've learned, I also the first draft 
I always will write too many lyrics and there's too many syllables and I cram things in and RC will, this is a common with all my collaborators. Like, it's too much crammed in and then you rhyme way too many times. So, you know. I, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, right, I'm not the only one who thinks that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the common comment. Okay, so, yeah. you know, but I'll do the draft and I'll get these comments and then I will streamline the melody. And I've learned streamlining the melody is a great thing to do. And for romantic songs, I often, as you know, write the whole music first. And then it becomes even easier because then I am 100% limited in where, uh, how many syllables I can squeeze into a line. And I think that's very important to not write. You can write a patter song, but again, you have to have the beats set up that way. You know, it has to be all set up that way musically so that it makes sense for a singer. Uh, and yeah, so I will send a first draft and RC will usually be like, that's pretty decent. Sometimes if he hasn't given me a treatment, I find there's a lot more comments, which is one of the reasons I asked for the treatment. When, <laughs> when I write the song without the treatment, you're like, oh, that's not what I was thinking at all. Let's not keep any of this. Uh, right. But if I have a good treatment, I usually do a better job. But then RC will go line by line and be like, no, yes, it'll be like that scene in History of the World Part One. Yes, 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 yes. No, 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 no. Yes, no, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> and if I can get a full, like, you know, uh, verse past RC, I'm like, I did something. <laughs> yeah, and we usually go back and forth three or four times. Yeah, it's usually yeah. at least three or four. Yeah, to get to the, to, to essentially really get to the first solid draft. And then we go into the next phase of what what happens when you have a singer in the room and a music Yeah, director. well, I think, yeah. you know, we were not, we're, we still have four numbers to go in act one right now. It's uh, RC has to, the book has to catch up. But, uh, but soon I think we'll have a full act and then act two yeah. should be much easier to write. There are fewer songs and probably a bunch of reprises. Yes, but a lot of plotting. The plotting gets, now it gets complicated. That's really the, every time I sit down and think, oh my God, the, the story, the mystery, the plotting, the, what happens if he looks in the phone and does this with his phone? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And how will it reflect later? But, well, anyway. that's, you know, it's also hard because we're setting it in 2022. Uh, there's a lot more technology than there were was in 1922. Yeah, and I, I, you know, if you watch a show that's present day and nobody ever, ever, ever has a phone, or they do something like there's a show, uh, the cheerleader show that was on Broadway that was really bad. Um, Bring it on. Sorry. Bring it on. Yes. Uh, you know the characters, uh, the the plot point that changes everything in the middle of the second act is these characters are thinking they're in part of a, a competition where they're going to win a million dollars. And then they, the person who manages and who has convinced them that there is a competition says, Oh, I was just kidding. There isn't really one. And nobody in the, you know, in the entire timeline of the show bothered to check it out. They just believe this person. And so you sit there and think, are you kidding me? And they talk about their phone the whole time and computers and stuff. And nobody, nobody ever went, well, I wonder who, who's, who's our competition in this show or in this, uh, you know, who, who else is in the competition? Nobody ever looked it up. Not one time. Yeah. So, so that makes it harder 
because we're doing, you know, and there's the book and the secret adversary, the, the girl goes missing. And you're like, well, have they looked at all the web cameras? Like that wasn't a problem in 1920. Uh, but I think we're coming up with some interesting ways to, yeah. to, to get around that. Right. Uh, it helps that our name is so common. So there's a lot of them. Right. Uh, you know, it, that's a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh, adaptation is a challenge, but it's more of a challenge if you're modernizing it. With the Diamonds Big as the Ritz, we have the frame, but we kept the whole story in 1922. So it was that was, I think, an easier adaptation that way. And when I yes. did my children's musical, that was even easier because it's about a dog and dogs don't have cell phones. Uh, as of yet. As of yet. Maybe, maybe one day, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. So then, as I said, we go back and forth. And then the next step would be uh, RC will come over when we have a full score and we'll sing through the whole thing. Well, I'll sing through the whole thing. And then we'll, we'll get even pickier about Scansion and be like, that doesn't quite sound right. And also I feel when you have months removed, you'll be like, oh, I, I find this when I write crossword puzzles too. If you take a month off and come back, all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a different solution. Oh, wait a minute. Wouldn't it make more sense if this verse was about this? Uh, because also you'll have the rest of this show done by then. So maybe something that happens in act two, you'll be like, oh, wait a minute. Let's say this, then it, it'll gel you know, it'll be foreshadowing or whatever. Uh, then after that, then is when we would do a table read where we would invite some of the actors we would like to be in the show and just say, will you come around a table and so we can hear this out loud. And again, I would sing the songs because if we're not paying the actors, we can't expect them to learn songs. Uh, and then we would invite, you know, a few people for feedback. And RC, of course, you have your writers group are you still doing that? No. <laughs> it got canceled during COVID. And I'm not sure it's coming back. We'll find it. But, you know, we can certainly ask people for their opinions. Yeah, well, we'll send it yeah. to some of our writer yeah. friends. Uh, but maybe we'll do a table read uh, at, you know, one of Ripley or Pearl or something and invite some people. Yeah, and, they're, uh, they're non-actors just for their feedback. That would be yeah, really helpful. We would yeah. usually invite writers uh, or we would invite actors who are, are writers like Rory uh, to, to come in and just read a part and then get feedback. And so once we get that feedback, uh, and then at some point when we feel confident enough about it, we would do an actual reading uh, where we would bring on actual singers and a musical director, and then there will be more changes there because we'll bring in a director and the director will have ideas. Uh, and then we would probably do a few readings and uh, eventually, hopefully the show will start garnering interest from investors. It's, unlike the Diamonds Because of the Ritz, that's a small show and it would work great in a nonprofit space, but you can't really do an off-Broadway show with five people. I think four people is the limit in terms of trying to get your investors your money back, as I've learned. So I, I think, you know, it's hard though with all the nonprofits, they have their agendas too. So it's, it's a very hard thing, I think, to get a show up. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, impossible. Yeah, so. it's, it's it, there. It is. It's, it's only going to be worse the next couple of years. I to be honest, a lot of the theaters closed, and there'll be a lot more people trying to get their shows up. And I think the theaters that are kind of come back aren't going to be. Let's do new stuff. They're going to be. Like, you know what? Let's do Andy. It's on the yeah, music. let's bring yeah. back the Music Man. 
Yeah, let's bring back shows that we know people will definitely come to see. But I think, as we said, the Agatha Christie murder mystery, I think that screams commercial. And uh, what we've written so far is fantastic. I mean, I I think I'm very happy with with our progress so far. And it's very catchy score and very fun. It's fun. It's funny. uh, And you don't know what's happening. We have a twist at the end. We won't ruin for you. Uh, that I think no one will see coming. And uh, I'm very optimistic about it. I think it is the kind of show that people will want to see on Broadway. That's so, yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't be writing it. That was, you know, first, you have to love the piece you're writing. Second, if you can't see a future for it, you know, you can write the Faulkner musical. But, I mean, who are you playing for? Exactly. I always say that other playwrights or composers, librettists. So what theater do you think that would, this will appear in? And there often I get the response of well, any theater. And I'm like, no, because the small off-Broadway nonprofit is only gonna do a certain kind of show and a bigger, a bigger theater like the Muni or the Starlight Theater in Kansas City are gonna do a certain kind of show. They're not gonna do the, they're not gonna, uh, the Starlight Theater isn't gonna do Love Quirks before, an audience of 3,000 people. No, no. but a lot They're, of just not. They're not even going to think about it. It's not even on anybody's agenda. Yeah. So that's, you have to sort of think, well, who, what are the kinds of theaters? And actually sort of force yourself to write it down. It, this theater, this theater, this theater, this theater. I've been to this theater. I can imagine them doing that. As opposed to, well, I know I can try to beg them to do it. And they won't do it. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be an easier sell for a big Broadway musical. Uh, the Ritz is a little bit of a niche piece. I, I thought we would have found a theater. We might have found a theater by now if it hadn't been for the pandemic. The pandemic right. kind of yeah. stopped theater everywhere. Right. It's going to take, and it's going to take a while for it to come back. Yeah, I still very much believe in that show. And as you said, it it holds up. You know, it. I listened to the score the other day, and I was like, "This is this is great." So even if it takes another five years, there's there's no time constraint, and that's that's one thing I learned from the pandemic is to get rid of my self-imposed deadlines and timelines because you can't control anything, especially these days. Uh, So I've just learned to let go of that. And you know what, it's okay. You know, I have really great material and really great shows. Even if it takes another five, 10 years for them to get up, uh, I'm still here, RC, I'm still here. You are. I love when (laughs) awards at the Oscars go to people in their 80s. It makes me feel like I (laughs) There you go. Yeah, it makes me feel better about, you know, being in my 40s now. But it's okay. I'm still early, early 40s. There you go. I'm not, I'm not that old. I'm still, still young, still young at heart and still young in body. All right. Well, uh, apparently we uh, have talked for almost an hour. So I think we're going to have to uh, wrap up and get to our closing questions. Okay. Uh, Fire away. What is the time uh, a millennial annoyed you? When... My uh, niece's boyfriend got sick in December and gave his, my niece, COVID, and then my niece gave it to me. And then we said to him, well, you know, you had it. And he said, no, I didn't. I never got tested for it. I didn't have it. (laughs) We're like, what? How could you, what? That is super specific and very annoying. Yes. Wow. They're very millennial, right? Oh, I have not. The, 
The classic thing of, I have no idea where I got it. It's like, I'm 100% sure where I got it. My niece is 100% sure where she got it. And you're pretending you don't have it? Come on. Uh, what advice would you give yourself uh, 10 or 20 for you? It could be 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> for some people, it, it can't be more than 10 because they're still so young. That's right. But you uh, well, 20 years ago, you can as well. Uh, I would just go back to, you know, I, I started writing shows because I felt like I could. I had no training. I had no experience. And I would say that, you know, you do have to start somewhere. And sometimes it's just sitting down and writing. And, but you have to finish stuff. And you have to get other people's feedback. And you have to be honest with yourself. Right. And so the very first show I wrote, uh, I wrote the libretto. It's terrible. I mean, it's not, it's not a terrible idea. It's just not well executed. And I'm looking back at it now. And then I remember sending it to someone I was joining in a writer's group. And I realized later on how bad it was. <laughs> I was like, thank you for allowing me to be in this group because uh, I had no formal training and I just had to kind of be told this sucks. Well, I think <laughs> and listen to it and listen to it and take it, take it as hard, you know. Yeah, it takes 10 to 20 years to get good at your craft. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of millennials actually do try to rush that. But yeah, I think, well, I'll, I'll write it this year and I'll be done and I'll learn. And next year, my show will be terrific. Everybody will love it. I yeah. thought my show that I wrote in college was going to go to Broadway at the time. And if it when it comes on shuffle on my iTunes, I'm like, I can barely listen to it. It's so yeah. bad. Exactly. Exactly. When you're young, you just really think your stuff is, is better awesome. than it is. Exactly. Well, and then also you compare yourself. You say, well, so-and-so wrote this and it's on Broadway or so-and-so wrote this and it's on the theater. But then you realize, but if you really look at all the other people who have written all the other shows that have never gone anywhere, that's not one in a hundred or one in a thousand or one in 10,000. It's kind of one in a million. You just can't compare yourself to everybody else. Well, you heard it here first, guys. Don't compare yourself to anybody else and uh, don't expect you're going to have an overnight sensation it takes a lot of hard work and uh yeah so if you want to check out the diamonds because of the ritz i should say you can go to the ritzmusical.com and you can find uh, our demo cd is almost every song we ended up replacing one and writing one new one since we recorded but i think the cd is great and it's available anywhere you're streaming uh it should be there you can find it on youtube you can find it on spotify uh, Pandora. I don't really do any of that stuff. Apple Music. I, I think that's it. Amazon might have one. I don't know. You can also buy the MP3s on Amazon, but I don't think anyone does. I do. Uh, well, every so often we'll get a sale from the, Not ours, the, yeah, right. uh, the Love Quirks concept album, but uh, the Off-Broadway Love Quirks cast recording is going to come out when we bring the show back. So that's exciting. That yeah. has a full band and everything. Uh, but thank you, RC. This has been super fun. Thank you, Seth. It was great to see you. Uh, you know, none of the people listening can see your hair, but I, I don't mind that you didn't comb it. It's totally It's not terrible, it turns out. But yeah, yeah. You, at least you have hair. I have uh, hair, yes. Half your, your age, and right. I have less exactly. than half your hair. Oh, you have more than less than half my hair. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely have. All right. Very okay. Hair. All right, Seth. Thank you. All right. Uh, so thanks for listening, everybody. Next week, I have uh, my friend Avital Asseline. She's going to talk about choreography. Uh, so we're still in our, this is our creative section. Last week, we talked about comedy. This week, 
uh, writing a musical, next week, choreography. Uh, so I hope you'll tune in then. So you'll hear me next time right here on Millennials Are Ruining the World Question Mark and Exennial Perspective, Real Conversations Bridging the Gap Between Generations X and Y. I'm not woke, but I'm awake. Millennials are ruining the world and exennial perspective.